is it possible to change the non-adherent behaviors of the two-thirds of plan members who aren't motivated to change? And if you could, how would that impact claim spend? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of the Shift Shapers podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement designed specifically for educational institutions. If you have clients in that vertical, you know the healthcare deck has been stacked against them. Today, Captivated Health offers the stability, control, and savings they've been waiting for. For more information, go to www.captivatedhealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. How can you be the first to know about each week's podcast and get on the list for special listener-only content? It's simple. Go to shiftshapersonline.com and click the subscribe button. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're speaking with Ted Borgstadt. Ted is CEO at Trestletree. They're a unique company. They focus on helping people make and sustain long-term behavioral change, which we know is hard, with a goal of yielding better health and ultimately, of course, lower claims costs. And those are two things that we all want. It's a little bit beyond the norm, and I thought it would be a great place to start our discussion today. With that, welcome, Ted. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me here. You guys are focused on a big, big problem, and I know it's something that you've spent a lot of years studying, which is changing non-inherent health behaviors. And I think we're going to hear that phrase, non-inherent, a lot more as we go down the road. But you've got unmotivated people, so you're trying to get people who aren't adhering to a regimen and who aren't really motivated, motivated to do that and to change. Is that even doable? You know, it is doable, but I think it's been elusive to a lot of the industry. And I think part of that is the construct of a lot of organizations that, in my opinion, have misaligned some of what Jim Prochaska's lifelong work has been with the transtheoretical model of change. That model is really was never built to be a filter to keep people out of wellness and disease management programs. And yet... That is typically how it is used today, that there is an assessment done with a health risk assessment on a readiness to change assessment. And I was reading just over the weekend about an organization and is a, just a proposal that went out just uh, two months ago here in 2016. And it basically said that we identify people who are ready to change and that we believe the investment for outreach should only be for those that are ready to change behavior. If you do that, you've now just limited your scope of influence within a total population to at best a third of the population. And so we do have organizations that have, have really built their companies on the premise of we're going to find people who are motivated to change, give the right information to the right person at the right time, be a caring health care professional, and give some good accountability. But again, it feels like over the last 10 to 15 years, we've recycled that same third of the population over and over again. 
So we certainly believe that change is not just advisable, but also achievable for a total population, which means the two-thirds that are not very motivated and the ones that are non-adherent, you've got to be able to do something with. But I think if anything, over the last 15 years within health and wellness and disease management programs with employers across the country, we certainly have seen that you cannot approach, treat, try to help someone change who's non-adherent, who is not motivated, the same way you do with someone's motivated. So from the very beginning, I think change is advisable and achievable for an entire population, but you certainly have to have the right tools in hand. One of the tools that I know you talk about an awful lot in some of your writings is this, this whole notion of trust. Is trust the key and being able to build trust relationships, the key to being able to influence those folks who don't self-identify as ready to make changes? You know, I, I think it is paramount in order to to influence someone. I think healthcare is really good about leading with knowledge, which is this is the right evidence-based guidelines, and let's ma- let me make sure that you understand the evidence-based guidelines, that you can repeat back to me the evidence-based guidelines. That doesn't necessarily equate to behavior change or even engagement, honestly, of people that are not adherent and uh, and not motivated. What we have seen is that when you're able to impart skills into a health professional to have conversations with someone that allows that individual to trust you with their first reaction. I think that's the, the component of healthcare today is that healthcare is quick to jump in and correct when there is inaccuracy stated about someone's condition or something that's a partial truth that's stated. I think across the board, whether you're a pharmacist, a physician, a nurse, you're trained to jump in, correct. Here's the two studies to back that up. Now let's go on and move forward. The trust component is imperative because unless someone trusts you, they're really not going to put their stuff out on the table. And I think that's the part where we see the difference between effective programs, working with people that are less motivated, non-motivated, non-adherent, is it's certainly not about right information, right person, right time. It really is about how can you work radically different with the individual rather than going through the front door of just education, trying to find a teachable moment. Let me share with you what you need to do. It's actually being able to sit with someone in the midst of the messiness of their life. And I think part of that training with health professionals really has to do with valuing the messiness of someone's life. And unless someone trusts you, David, they're not going to share that messiness. We had a a situation happen where there was a surgical nurse from a local hospital, and she had lived with being type 1 diabetic for about six years. And she was a surgical nurse. And she shared with one of our professionals, health professionals, some beliefs that, that really kind of flew in the face of Evans space guidelines. I don't know that she could have backed that up looking at the medical journals and saying, here's where I got that truth. But it's what she chose to believe to be true. She only shared that in an environment where she trusted someone with their first reaction. Instead of being judged harshly by potentially one of the, the surgeons in the OR, 
you know, if you have someone that can lean in and, and someone who can provide that environment where someone trusts you and you know what to do with that information, then it's not a, let me open up the door and now let me open up the fire hose of information so I can educate you. It really is about matching that individual where they are and helping them move forward. So that sense of matching people and moving helps continue to build that trust in someone who truly is heard. But I want to circle back to one thing that I think is really critical, David. It's the messiness of life. I think that's the part where, unfortunately, we have a system within healthcare that really doesn't have time to lean into the messiness of someone's life. And so they actually seek to avoid it. And and unless for people that are unmotivated, non-adherent, unless you actually lean into the messiness of their life that oftentimes has nothing to do with taking medication or monitoring of a condition, it's much more about the holistic component of stress around relationships at home, at work, around finances, whatever those things may be. If someone feels like you're on the same page and value what they're saying and trust them, you're not judging them, they tend to open up more. And when those things happen, you open up more with a trained health professional to appropriately match them and help move them forward. It becomes a powerful environment for change where oftentimes people have given up hope that they can change. And again, it circles back to that trust. Trust is not something that you earn it once. You don't have to earn it again. It's a continual development of earning trust and continuing to support that trust moving forward. Ted, in terms of overall finances of plans, how big a problem is this non-adherence problem? What's the scope of it? What does it look like? You know, it's there's pretty good data that's out there right now from NIH and and other credible sources. And, you know, one number that I've heard thrown around is that non-adherence directly is responsible for 10% of the spend within healthcare today, which... 10% equals about $300 billion. But I think you can break that down. That's a big number. It's hard for certainly how many zeros that takes to be able to calculate. And so I think you can start to break that down by different categories and it starts to have some building blocks to make sense for. You know, when you, if you look at non-adherence and just Google that, uh, typically what you're going to see is, is medication non-adherence, which I think is a good place to start. But that's not the only thing that people are non-adherent with. But, you know, based on an, an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine, a third of the patients fail to fill their first prescription from the physician. Half of all patients do not adhere faithfully to RX medication regimens, resulting in a hundred billion annual avoidable hospitalizations. The CDC back in 2013 came out and they estimated as far as RX non-adherence, it's a pretty big range between $100 billion and $289 billion. And that's just on the medication component. If you look at diabetes, NIH came out and said the cost of non-adherence within diabetes, they peg it $100 billion annually. But then you start to look at some of the things that really, you know, start to are more lifestyle events that clearly have impact on if you continue in poor lifestyle managements and habits, more than likely you you will be diagnosed at some point with type 2 diabetes or hypertension or dyslipidemia. But even looking at exercise, 
It was interesting is that only one article I read had only 19% of people that had a chronic disease exercised at evidence-based guidelines. So one in five people, and they showed an increase of 6% specifically to that lack of exercise, an increase of 6% for coronary heart disease, increase of 7% for type 2 diabetes, a 10% increase in breast cancers, and a 10% increase in colon cancers. If you look at nutrition, it's another area that, that certainly non-adherence is prevalent. 75% of the population here in the United States is low in eating vegetables, fruit, the other things that are uh, important. And also, you've got over 50% correlating to that, over 50% exceed recommendations for added sugars, fats, sodiums. So one additional point that I would raise on the nutrition is that one article showed that if you had a permanent, which I think is underscore permanent, decrease in 100 calories a day, that it would impact over 71 people, 71 million people that are obese or overweight and have an impact of savings of $58 billion a year. So clearly there are resources out there and studies that are out there that really speak to the point of non-adherence is an issue. And again, I think for all of us, David, that non-adherence is not a new issue. I think what we've got to be able to focus on is non-adherence. Can you have actually have change? Can you actually reverse non-adherence? Or like a lot of organizations today, they put that on the bell curve of said of saying, there's no way you can impact it. So let's not even go there. Let's just try to find people that are motivated and focus on them. Today, within our value-based world in the healthcare, where employers want to go is employers want the people that are not engaged, unmotivated, non-adherent. Those are the ones that are spending the most money and are the least healthy. And so those are the ones that actually they want to engage. So I think there's good data out there that shows that if we can have tangible impact on non-adherence, we're going to see cost savings. And now a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single source solution for your clients and prospects who are in the education vertical. The founders of Captivated Health have nearly 20 years' experience working with educational institutions, and over that time, they've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems these clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing health care costs, and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, these groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace until now. Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems, and it does so with virtually no disruption to faculty and staff while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to the educational clients you advise. To learn more about the Captivated Health solution, Go to their website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on their logo on the Shift Shapers website. And now, back to our interview. So if, if you look at a given cohort, at a given population, let's say you've got a, a group, it doesn't really matter what size, how do you start determining what conditions to look at or which people look at? Do you look at folks who are dealing with chronic conditions do you look for, you know, the ones we always talk about? You've mentioned a couple of them, diabetes, cholesterol, blood pressure, et cetera. What's the process like? And I know every, every employer group is different, but generally speaking, how do you go about doing that? 
There's certainly nuances with every organization from a health culture standpoint, certainly between industries, even geographical differences as well. I think that when you start to look at where's the most immediate return on investment, it really, I think, starting with the people that have diagnosed chronic conditions to begin with is an important place to start, but it's not the only place. You've got emerging risk that can certainly bubble up to a lot of spending very quickly. I think the issue really comes down to, I think there's a lot of good stratification that goes on today within healthcare. So we've got big data. We have medical claims and pharmacy claims and biometric data, health risk assessment data, eligibility data. You know, we've got short-term, long-term disability. So we have a lot of data that's being used. But the issue is data really obviously shows us what has happened in the past with some good math and algorithms. We can do some predictive on who's going to be higher risk in the future. The identification of those individuals is not the answer. That's just one of the tools. I think what we have to be able to do is then take those individuals and really can can change, not just be advisable, but it be achievable for those individuals as well. So I think that, that certainly a good place to start is biometric data and medical claims, pharmacy claims to be able to identify the people with comorbidities, the ones that, you know, are in a higher risk category. And I think the thing that changes then, David, is you've got to have the right tools. You know, my dad always used to tell me, he said, if you pray for potatoes, you better have a hoe in your hand. And it's that sense of, you know, one, having the right tool, and then number two, also being prepared and careful for what you pray for. And I think that's the component today. When you start to look at where do you start, we can solve the participation issue today more easily today than we could 10 years ago. And really, the basis of that is all the audience here understands because they're dealing with it every single day is helping employers be able to craft the right plan design. And so you can solve participation into different types of programs if you have a high enough premium differential or there are other tools that are out there as well. That's where you get back to what my dad used to say is you have to have the right tools. And so while, you know, if you get people to participate, then what happens? Well, if you have just a normal type of health and wellness disease management program that really is looking at and geared towards and actually only is functioning within somebody who's well motivated, then you've got two-thirds over here that are not very motivated and treating them, those two populations, very different populations the same is not going to yield outcomes. And so I do think that to your question, David, starting with people that have chronic conditions, people that you can identify that are high risk and emerging risk, but most importantly, do you have a program that actually is going to show measurable, tangible results for reversing the people with non-adherence? Well, let's talk about that. And we've got three or four minutes left. And one of the things that I know an awful lot of advisors have been wary of old-fashioned wellness programs is that it was almost impossible to get anybody to give you a demonstrable, repeatable ROI. So as advisors who are listening to the program are thinking about taking some of these new services with new models for change out to their clients to talk about, how important is it to be able to have a literal demonstrable ROI? Yeah, I I think it's critical today. I certainly talk with a lot of employers in my position, David. And what's interesting is that when someone challenges me that wellness doesn't work, disease management doesn't work, health coaching doesn't work, 
You know what I do? I immediately agree with them because the model that they have used has not worked to actually impact and and provide a return on investment for an entire population. It's critical. And I think it starts with good empirical data. Are you getting good baseline data? And I think the baseline data begins with good biometric data, you know, so that you've got an empirical baseline to be able to prove that against in biometrics year two. You can't skew that data. When you've got people who have to be in a coaching program because they biometrics were above evidence-based guidelines at baseline, and then they have some participation in some program, year two is going to tell the tale of the tape. And so that's the part that I think is important for CFOs to say is, number one, this is empirical on change of behavior that occurred during this time period. And then number two, is it really impacting the trend of the program and And if you, I I think we're at a place today where people are willing to say, if I have people change behavior that have been non-adherent and they actually have lost weight, they actually have been adherent to physician directors around medication and monitoring, and truly they're healthier, I think that uh, what we do see is the correlation into the savings as well. But it's got to be something tangible that the CFO sees. Ted, we've got about a minute left, and we like to ask oftentimes our guests where they see the future in their field going. So look into your crystal ball and talk about a year from now, two years from now, five years from now. Where do you see this field going, and and how do you see it shaping up? Yeah, I think we're going to see more and more demand on companies to show empirical behavior change and empirical ROI. I do think the demand is going to step up. It's not just about a check-the-box program any longer. I also see employers continuing to take more and more control in influencing how care is delivered within their community. And so I think that the influence with the physicians, it goes well beyond just a narrow network that just provides a a deeper volume-based discount. It really becomes how do we bring a philosophy to an entire community that truly changes advisable and achievable for everyone in that population, not just singling out the ones that are motivated? So I do see physicians continuing to be front and center, and, and clearly the alignment, most importantly, is with the dollars, right? And so we've got to make sure that we align the self-insured employers with the physicians directly, that we've got payments. Oftentimes, uh, large health plans, it can be a challenge for them to be as flexible as needed on a community level. But I think that's what what we're seeing out in the market is a community wanting to take care of themselves. And the one thing that I just would say to end on here, David, there's, there's a quote that I wanted to read to you that I think is very applicable today. And this is from uh, Cardinal Bernardine, Archdiocese of Chicago. And this was at the keynote for the American Medical Association two, two months before it passed away. And his quote was this, In order to truly heal the modern world, you have to provide health. And if you're going to provide health, you have to heal the whole society, individual, family, and community. And if you can do that, that's a holy thing. And I think where we are today is that employers and individuals are looking for true help to help people change behavior, but doing it that has influence within the family, you know, the individual, the family, as well as the community. Ted Borgstad, CEO of Trestletree. Ted, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Please come back. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved.